Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How much did you pay those people to pretend to be your friends? Crochet aside, what's happening next? I think if we're honest here, yours was not a good album. What's the best BPM? The moon's a funny old thing, isn't it? These are all questions my guest today has asked pop stars of varying fames. Most of them are questions only my guest today would ask. He's been writing for scores of seminal music magazines and sites for years, and only some of them are folded. He says so himself. I'm Adam Brooks, and this is Reads Like a Four, the podcast all about reviews and critics. As ever, you can find us on Twitter at Reads Like a Four, or email us readslikeafour at gmail.com. Today's guest is... Peter Robinson. But what's more? Over the last 20-something or other years, I've uh, reviewed for Enemy, Melody Maker, The Face. I'm just listing a load of titles that are shut here. Um, not your fault. Not my fault. Uh, Pop Justice, the blog I invented, um, and uh, Smash It, so my first one appeared. Lots of places. I've been a fan of Peter's writing for years, so if you're expecting a hardball interview where I take him to task over past failings, you're going to be disappointed. But if you're looking for a chat about the joy and tragedy of pop music and his part in recording its many twists, then get comfy as I talk to Peter Robinson. Let's just let's get going. <laughs> uh, uh, talking about the fact that, that Smash Hits is where you first started. I noticed on obviously did a, a base level of research and, uh, and saw on your LinkedIn that a lot of the quotes uh, that are up there about pop justice and how great it is, correctly, um, a lot of them use Smash Hits as a reference point. Is it fair to say Smash Hits was the the impetus for your writing in general? Is that was it was it the kind of was it what you wanted pop justice to be a a twenty first century version of? Kind of. I. In my teens, I was reading NME as much as I was reading Smash Hits. So I guess when I sort of went into doing writing, I kind of came from both those angles. But Smash Hits and the sense of humour and the way that they could sort of treat commercial music seriously and also treat it lightheartedly but still make a point while doing it. And this is sort of Smash Hits in the 80s rather than Smash Hits how it ended up. Yeah. But that, that's the kind of thing I wanted to... Uh, I probably didn't really have any... Uh, <laughs> probably didn't have any say in the matter. I think it just that was just like how I naturally wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, when I come to write for different publications, you sort of have to bear in mind who the readers are and what their age is and what the reference points are. 
But when it comes to pop justice, I, that's just how I would sort of write without any filter, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, yeah, so it's kind of, it's, it's their method of writing that you've carried forward, if you like. Because that was one thing I was going to say is one of the things I enjoy a lot about your writing, specifically on pop justice, is that it seems to take pop music seriously in a way that perhaps it's not taken seriously elsewhere, or, or at least treat it as something important, um, but also recognise that, you know, there are elements of pop music that are wholly ridiculous and, and fun. Well, I mean, the thing is, right, when I started reading smash hits in the sort of mid to late 80s, it would, uh, it, you know, it would cover all sort of pop music, but when it came to the single reviews or the album reviews or even in interviews, it would ask difficult questions or it would say, this single by this band is no good and here's why. Um, and by the time I'd come to set up Pop Justice, which was about sort of year 2000, um, Smash Hits was just saying that everything was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Every Westlife single was brilliant. Obviously, you know, not every Westlife single was brilliant. No. When you're looking like that, banger. Flying Without Wings, banger. Mm-hmm. Uptown Girl, you know, not so good. But, you know, Smash Hits was in a position where it would sort of... Spice Girls probably did this because it lowered the age... The, you know, the age of the readership yeah. so much that band um, but they got into they they back themselves into cold stuff where everything had to be brilliant so obviously you'd look at it and you'd sort of think well if they're saying everything's brilliant I know everything can't be brilliant so therefore I sort of can't trust anything they say so I think Smash It had sort of lost its authority by that point so I wanted right. to do a thing with Pop Justice where it was and that's kind of how it got its name in that I wanted to sort of do justice to Pop, mm-hmm. and I wanted to sort of say this is good, this is bad. I love, you know, I love pop music, but sometimes you just have to be not cruel to be kind, but actually, yes, cruel to be kind. Sometimes you just have to go, this is not good enough. Yeah, go well, away, go away and do it again. And a lot of the things on pop justice, it doesn't feel like uh, you know, the, the, there's not so many reviews in the traditional sense in that there's eighty words that summarizes, you know, the chorus is this, and you know, it's leading to this direction. But it feels like it tells you what you need to know. It tells you what you're looking for from a review without being a review a lot of the time. Oh, yeah, hopefully. I did, uh, I did a review of Justin Timberlake's new album recently, um, which uh, was called Man of the Woods. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, I mean, it was kind of ra- roundly panned by music critics from various different places, but I didn't really want to do like a thousand words here's uh, is what's happening here kind mm. of review so I uh, had it reviewed by five different men made out of wood I saw this I remember this Pinocchio mm-hmm. uh, Stickman from uh, the seminal novel mm-hmm. Stickman um, who else the Blair Witch effigy yep. uh, Wicker Man mm-hmm. there was some sort of mention in the copy about whether or not Wicker counts as wood but <laughs> the, the Wicker Man was very pleased to have been included because he was you know he was aware that it's you know important not to have divisions between wicker and wood these days, um, and, but th- through the course of it, there seemed I, I managed to sort of get in the, this dialogue between these five men made out of wood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I normally I would say that in retelling it, I'm making it seem less funny than it actually was. It wasn't actually very funny. I read the it. I thought it was very. Funny. <laughs> that's very kind, but the uh, yeah, I I sort of started writing it, thinking this will be really good, and then by the end of it, I was just like, oh, I'll hit published. But through the through the course of these sort of five. Uh, wooden men talking about stuff i would sort of included most of the points that I would have included in a sort of 800 word proper formal yeah. pitchfork style it review tells, it certainly told me what I needed to know about the record and I thought it also kind of played into the idea that he's he's taken a somewhat late in the game stab at quote unquote authenticity which is unravelled by having it reviewed by five 
fictional wooden characters. I did. That, I mean, that, that's. Uh, <laughs> I, did I do that consciously or subconsciously? I don't know. I, I like the idea that here was a very serious album that he was like, "This is me. I'm going back to nature and all that sort of stuff." And then uh, it was uh, not being taken as seriously in the format as he probably would have liked. But the points that it made are all points that would have made in a, in a serious review, I guess. Yeah, I think the problem I had when that album got got announced was that. I just tried to conjure up the image of Justin Timberlake whittling sticks and I just couldn't imagine it ever happening. And I thought, well, that's that's undone the premise of this record for me before I've even heard it a little bit. Yeah, and then also when the music started coming out, uh, it was quite it was a odd stuff with about the... him quite enjoying sex. And it's like, well, we're aware of that, Justin. You've been telling <laughs> us that for the last 15 years. For 10, yeah, 10 sensational years. Um, another thing that I found, again, on your LinkedIn that I didn't realise about you was that you also sometimes give media training. Uh, <laughs> does that mean I'm not going to get any dirt out of you? <laughs> well, I'm quite good at telling people what um, to... Uh, what, well, it's much like reviewing, really. I've never made a record in my life. I'm quite good at telling people how to behave in interviews and warning them about what tricks interviewers uh, pull but maybe you will find out how bad I'm about you know, All right. being interviewed myself we'll during. see we'll see but one, actually one interesting thing that I do say to people um, which is sort of relevant, relevant to reviews um, when I'm doing sort of media training stuff is uh, if, you, if you do an interview with somebody or even if you think they might be reviewing you uh, just follow them on Twitter because when it comes to negative reviews one of the big sort of comments that you get or tweets that you get or general sort of statements about journalist or whatever is well you wouldn't say that to their face and I mean I'd like to think that if some if something was really bad that I would say it to their face mm. but equally if you know an artist is following you on Twitter you kind of have that in the back of your head when you are writing you're that. saying it a little bit to their face it's in kind case. of their face and you know they're following you and so you know it'll be on their timeline and you're going this is shit I think not everybody Maybe I'm just a weak human being. <laughs> Maybe I just crave approval. But I think a lot of people would be a little bit kinder to an artist if they knew that they were going to see it. And also, most journalists want to be friends with pop stars, yeah. generally. And, and certainly, people might dial back a hatchet job, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Also, people in, you know, when people sort of need clicks on their websites and you know, engagement with their content, both those words hashtagged, mm-hmm. uh, a retweet from an artist who's usually, you know, who will very often have a far higher social following yeah. than the journalist, if not the title the journalist is working for, um, that would drive a lot of traffic. I see. So it's a carrot and stick approach. I'm following you. So if I mean, I sound, well, like, I sound like a terrible person. <laughs> I, don't, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's difficult. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's an argument that the, the, the journalist that was about to write a hatchet job and now won't because they're being followed is the more terrible in, in that scenario. But, uh, yeah, equally, a lot of journalists own, find out after their first hatchet job that they've done that people fucking love a hatchet job. Oh, yeah. They go berserk. I mean, you can write a you know five or ten star review, this is the album of the year, no one cares. You, you know, take an album apart, limb from limb, with loads of great jokes in it, and just people go bonkers. Yeah. It's, well, it's a really popular thing, and I think that... The, temptation there whether it's a, from an editor's point of view trying to get traffic to the website from a journalist's point of view trying to quote unquote make their name or get some notoriety or any of those sort of boring things that aren't quite as relevant now but from those people's point of view a hatchet job is kind of more valuable than a than a good review an argument i hear a bit talking to critics is that there's 
a really negative review is, is less necessary now. That the, the review space is constricted, and so people ought to stick more to championing things they like. Do you think that's fair, or do you think that, that actually there's as much space for bad reviews as good ones? I think um, it's difficult. I mean, I think I think that the the value of a bad review has diminished, but then the value of a good review has come to me. The value of any review has diminished at a point when, on the week of release, or even before, anyone who has a passing interest in it can go and listen to it for free and make up their own mind. So um, so the, 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 the informational aspect of, of a review just isn't as necessary now mm. as it would have been sort of, you know, eight or nine years ago before streaming or 20 years ago before stuff would appear online. Um, but in terms of in terms of, sort of providing some sort of context for where the music has come from or how it's ended up as it is or trying to figure out what is this person trying to do on this album or single or live show you know what are they trying to do um, have they done it well and is what they're trying to do actually worth trying to do in the first place mm-hmm. those are sort of things worth kind of unpicking yeah and then um, then I guess there's your you've sort of thrown a bit of do I personally like it um, and that's a difficult thing especially in a, I've, I've thought about this recently a lot when I've done live reviews in that you'll be in an arena with 15, 20,000 people going berserk and you'll be the one person like making notes on your iPhone going mm, this is a bit shit or you know I've seen this before or mm. what and everyone's going mental and you just sort of think well am I, am I actually right to say this is rubbish what actually is bad about it yeah um, I reviewed Bros for The Guardian. I read that. Um, they um, And that was in the same week that, um, that my favourite ever band, The KLF, staged their own comeback. So Bros staged a comeback, which was sort of press-released in advance by a, a big-name music publicist. Uh, I can't even remember what it was. Something like The Comeback of a Generation or mm. something like that. It was ludicrously over the top. So everyone was going, is it ABBA or whoever? And then it turned out to be Bros, but actually just the brothers because um, Craig Logan had far better things to do with his actual career. I remember and when they were making people guess, they put a silhouette of two people on. I wondered if that was partly to manage expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they managed those expectations. Stuff, but it's just like, hang on, hold on. So you're announcing the review, the reunion of two twins who see each other at least every Christmas. This, <laughs> this is, and, and then you sort of go back, because I'm obviously old enough to remember Bross mania and full swing they were properly massive they were you know sold out Wembley Stadium you know the whole thing big hits but in a very short period of time and without very many hits so you look at their discography and it's about you know eight hit singles or something and um, so obviously I went to Wembley Arena and Pat Sharp was DJing the Pat Sharp I don't know how I'd describe Pat Sharp to uh to podcast listeners who perhaps didn't grow up in the in the thrall of that's do you know what FM. sometimes I completely forget there'll be people younger than both of us listening to he, Pat Sharp was like uh Imagine Grimmy with bad shirts and bad hair. Um, there's probably a punchline there, which I'm not going to do. He's, he, um, he exists at the axis of, of light entertainment presenter, radio yeah. DJ and game show host. And his DJ set sounded exactly like that. It was just wall-to-wall pop bangers. And I was like, this is amazing. Everyone, and the entire audience went it's kind of crazy when Bross came out. But So I was thinking, what is this actually shit? Because everyone's enjoying it, um, but it was shit. <laughs> it was <laughs> really, summary, it was yes. really bad. They'd had to scale the whole thing down, so they couldn't achieve any of the economies of scale you'd usually get on a big arena tour. Mm-hmm. So um, 
So the, it was it was just it was done on the cheap. Um, Matt was reading his lyrics off an auto cue. It was just it was it was not a good example of a comeback. But I bore that in mind because later in the week I knew I was going to Liverpool for this three day thing that the KLF were doing, mm-hmm. and so. The idea of sort of a load of people in their 40s, my age, a load of people in their 40s at Wembley Arena going mental for this, this comeback. I was like, well, I am probably going to be doing the same thing myself later on. So you sort of have to sort of put yourself in the position of the audience a lot of the time. Yeah. How could you, how would you have handled a, a terrible review of the KLF? Yeah. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah. I wouldn't have reacted. Well, actually, I, I can imagine how somebody who had no idea about anything about the KLF would just look at that and go, this is... This is just bollocks. Baffling. Yeah, but, um, yeah. I mean, but I, I would have thought the KLF are, are in a better position to... Well, I don't know that Bross has a mythology, but I think KLF are in a better position to to re- give a return of their... You know, to do something that matches your expectation, your, you know, your, the, your expectation of their mythology. If you know. And they did. Yeah. I cried. Well, there you go. But I'm sure people cried at Bross as well. They're maybe not all for the same reason. I mean, I was crying by uh, an hour <laughs> and a half in... Just one more, a couple of little things on media training. Um, my my view of that was always that, um, well, I think this is unfair, perhaps that that it, what it leads to is duller interviews. Yeah. But then I also think that some of the most entertaining interviews I've read have been on Pop Justice. So how how is that squared? Am I am I wrong about media training? Is there a lot more to it than that? Is it about making sure people give? Uh, interviews that are interesting but without giving too much away and how do you kind of square the idea that on the one hand you're you're teaching people not to not to say anything too that goes too far or is unexpected or, or unusual meanwhile the questions they're being asked in pop justice are often ludicrous questions they would never be asked by anybody else well I, I mean I totally agree with you on the media training thing I mean there's a lot of bad media training which is kind of like how you would sort of train a dog or something, isn't it? It's just you know, like the giving sit, stay, and just and you can sort of tell when uh, when that's kind of happened to somebody. Usually, it's it's extremely hard work as a journalist, and it's not particularly rewarding for for the um, for the for the viewer or the reader. And and I don't think it serves any purpose for the artist either, because mm. they're not going to get some sort of boost in sales or streams if they give a boring interview. Um, so when I do it, I try and I, we, te- we tend to have this kind of quite long period. Well, sometimes it will start off, sometimes they won't know it's media training. So I'll go in, give them an, the world's worst interview and make them say all sorts of terrible things that they would never okay. want to say. Um, and then just and then just when it looks like it's about to come to blows, the, me or the PR will go, wow, it's media training. It's all mm-hmm. fine. Uh, doesn't work for all artists like that because I don't think that's fair on all artists. No. But sometimes when I've been called in um, by somebody who's just going, look, this artist is doing interviews, they're all over the place. They too, they're too confident, they're too big for their boots in it, and they don't understand the danger they can put themselves in, especially in the in the you know social era when sort of one sort of mistaken quote can pretty much end a career or end a career in the eyes of the media, if not actual mm-hmm. fans. Um, so, so, so sometimes it will be a question of calming people down. But what I find most rewarding, what I enjoyed in most, is with a sort of new artist who perhaps isn't particularly confident in interviews, is to sort of sort of break down exactly who they are in terms of what you know, how they would, what they would want people to say about them, mm-hmm. what points they want to get across, um, and how to, and sort of how to how to deal with people who are often a lot older than them and more experienced than them, and who ultimately have the upper hand in an interview situation because they get to publish the results. Yeah. 
um, and how to sort of feel comfortable in that sort of situation. So a lot of it is about just explaining what I, as a journalist, like to get in interviews, which is I don't always I don't always want I don't always need a direct answer to every question as long as there's enough happening in the interview and enough interesting quotes and stories. Yeah. To well, to fill the piece or for it to you know to I don't I don't I don't need a kind of sort of question answer question answer thing necessarily. If they want to lead me off in a direction with an amazing anecdote, then they're very welcome to do that if they can sort of turn things around. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And even if they don't have have a response for every question, some of the some of the best response not responses on pup justice are the bits I enjoy the most where it's just like there isn't an answer it's just shuffles uncomfortably or you know stares at me directly yeah. that sort of thing um, some general questions about pop music uh, because uh, you're... is this a pop quiz? <laughs> if you like <laughs> I mean it, you make that, that gives it a level of a Bradley level of... Tina <laughs> Rachel no carry on that gives, me a, a, that gives it a level of frivolity that I have not worked <laughs> into these questions so uh, in terms of pop music in general do you think pop music is more immune than other genres to a bad review I was talking to somebody else on another episode about how uh, Divide by Ed Sheeran was essentially an unsinkable record in that you could get zero out of 10s from everybody and it will have minimal commercial impact so do you think that's true of, of pop as a genre in general do you think that reviews have less weight when it comes to evaluating pop music i think any any act or single or album or whatever that's any act who's reached kind of critical mass where they're huge where they are will just could just walk onto any tv program or any radio a-list or whatever or that's very old-fashioned uh way of quantifying it isn't any it? any streaming Spotify playlist you know, any top of every Spotify playlist um, and could tweet a link to their music album on Spotify and that would just do everything I think that they those people have cut out any sort of taste making or sort of critical angle I think from it I think it was it was interesting with the Justin Timberlake album because I did feel that there was so that the reviews for that were so uh, they dwelled so much on sort of Justin's position as a sort of man out of time slightly who had um, who had got away with uh, with various sort of aspects of either male privilege or white privilege or whatever and whether it was you know Justin uh, with with Janet at the Super Bowl Mm -hmm. or with kind of using um, using sort of uh, aspects of uh, you know using black producers or whatever to make R&B music when he was white and it felt like a lot of the reviews were saying right the chickens have come home to roost mm-hmm. now and I, I and I did wonder if that had a, then had a bit of a kind of impact on things like radio or whatever um, but you know it went I don't know, it went to number one. Yeah, it went to number one. Mm-hmm. But equally, it was his worst ever first week sales for any of his solo albums. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I think any, any critic now who thinks that their reviews can make or break a big album is probably an idiot. I think there's there's a middle, a, a sort of middle tier of pop music 
Because t- to me, it seems like uh, in, in terms of sort of indie and, 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 and other genres and things like that, there's very much like a, a progression through several layers. But with pop, it feels like there's kind of, there's sort of auditioning for the X Factor, singing at your dad's working men's club, kind of, you know, being the best at karaoke. And then there's like, you sign to BMG and you've got a quarter of a million pounds. And it doesn't always feel like there's a huge amount in between. I wonder a if that's really true, and b maybe that in, that in, if it isn't true, that in between layer is where reviews really make a difference. Well, I think that's interesting because I, I I think you know that there are still a lot of people who just suddenly appear and they're huge, and you're like, where did that come from? Um, and I think um, that, for instance, that that I think is one of the reasons that people have a problem with Rita Ora because she appeared had number one single and then she was just famous. Mm-hmm. Didn't feel to a lot of people as if she'd worked for it or she'd paid her dues or whatever because people didn't know that she'd you know been sort of singing and grafting away at it and had come from a extremely sort of underprivileged background and mm-hmm. somehow sort of made the success of herself so um so I think people have always been a bit wary of Rita Ora who suddenly appeared and I think partly that's because pop stars who suddenly appear are, are a lot more rare now um and what I noticed in about sort of between sort of 2005, 2007, around sort of MySpace, is that uh, it was expected that artists would sort of start off, get their own fan base, do like sort of teaser singles that weren't supposed to be hits, but then it sort of made them look cool, mm-hmm. all sorts of things like that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, and what, and what is what's difficult with that, like Dua Lipa is a really good example of that, because obviously she's kind of huge now, she's the, British pop success story of the last two years mm-hmm. but you know she started off doing like very kind of minor interviews with um, little websites and things or she, you know she had a couple of singles that were sort of good but you wouldn't go oh this is going to be the next big artist um, and, th- and that's just all there to sort of build the credibility of an artist so that when they go to um, you know to a bigger website or to specialist radio or something they can go, well, she's had all the support from all these kind of cool places. And mm-hmm. then once they've got the specialist thing and they've got the sort of slightly bigger websites, then they can go to Radio 1 and they can go, well, she's got all this cool support. Because obviously everyone's still obsessed with cool and credibility and stuff like that, even when it's a pop artist. So it, sometimes it takes, sometimes it just takes a year of just faffing about before you actually find out who this pop star is ultimately supposed to be. Yeah. Because they don't want to, they don't want to scare kind of the tastemakers because they are still important at that lower level um, by being too pop I don't think you can ever be too pop really I think I think just get on with it so, I mean so much time and money is wasted on these things and then after like 18 months of like buzz releases and features on this DJ's track and whatever they release their first single and it goes nowhere and you just think you've just spent 500 grand on that Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hmm. Do you think there's, there's not a... I wonder if there's not a, a, the novelty tier of pop music that there was. You know, like... Is there an this might just be because I'm not as engaged with pop music as you, but where's where's the bros? Where's the steps? Where's where's the the, the rednecks of 2018? Does that is that still a like a subgenre of pop that exists? Do you think kind of supermarket pop? I guess for want of a better word. I mean, have you heard Galway Girl by Ed Sheeran? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there just, is that. Just an old joke there, um, or is it? <laughs> I um, yeah, it's. I think streaming sort of killed, uh, well, it's killed greatest hits albums, mm. um, but it's also killed novelty record, and it's killed charity record. Mm. Um, and, and but it was all, it's also put the kibosh on sort of big. This kind of relates back to one of the one of your other points. It kind of relate. It, it's kind of killed the idea that if you are famous, you will have a number one single. Um, so using Bros as the example, I think. I can't remember which, I think it might have been I Owe You Nothing. One of their tracks they released on so many different formats, knowing that each of their fans would buy each. I think they released it on nine different formats, mm -hmm. knowing that each of their fans would buy each of the nine formats, because I think there were three formats and each came with a different member of Bros on the cover. Yep. And it was so shameless that I, I'm pretty sure that the official charts company changed their chart rules after that. Um, so they were, they, they were the shearing yeah. of their day. They, they were they the instigators of the change in chart rules. But even through to even through to the like the download era, um, where you could sort of download a album in multiple different online stores or whatever, a band like One Direction would be sort of guaranteed that they would do well in terms of singles because yeah. bands would go out, they would spend their ninety nine p to support the band. But it's difficult with streaming because streaming so so much a part of the charts now that. I mean, you could sort of stream a song on repeat all day, mm. but that still it sort of wouldn't touch the site. It wouldn't make a big enough impact. Because it, to, to get to the top of the streaming charts, you have to have like millions and millions and millions of streams. Yeah. Whereas to get number one at certain points in pop history, you've had to sell like 20,000. Well, it's a, I guess it's a better gauge of genuine desire that people is, might yeah. love a single, but they're not going to listen to it more than seven times. Cause yes, just, they're just not, just exactly. Not so it's, it's, it's democratised the charts to a certain extent. But, you know, but... but Going back to what I was saying, it when it comes to things like charity singles or novelty singles, things people might buy for a laugh, or I mean, obviously you don't buy charity singles for a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Although some of them are pretty funny yeah. unintentionally. Um, the, things you might buy as a this is what it is. Things you might buy as a token of sentimentality or um, empathy or anything like that. Things you buy as a token rather than because of what music is actually on it. Yeah. Um, those things don't work anymore. 
Although they do work when it comes to vinyl, because people no one plays the vinyl, do they? Yeah. Well, well, no, that's a bit. Of, no, that's a bit of a sweeping statement. A lot of vinyl isn't really played because it's a pain in the. It looks nice, pain in the ass. Have it on the shelf. Listen on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it's for display. Yeah, yeah. it's well, it's yeah, like it's say, just it's, fine, it's, you know, it's a token. Um, so we're, we're we're talking on well, I guess arguably a significant day for for music criticism, certainly in that uh, I, I found out today. You may have known previously that that uh, Enemy is going out of print. Uh, by the time people hear this, it will be old news. Yeah, I, I imagine. Knew, I, I knew about three years ago. <laughs> uh, another well, another sure. Joke. I mean, I think another yeah, joke. yeah. I, I think once 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 the title goes through, you can tell that there's uh, the longevity may not be there anymore. Look, I don't, actually, do you know what? I don't want to sound like a twat um, saying that. I um, I think. So before it went free, enemy circulation was so low that most publishers would have just shut it. It was, you know, it was hemorrhaging cash and, you know, whatever. Um, and they sort of took a punt on making it free and it didn't work out. But fair play for trying to extend the title in some other way. So, you know, it was... Uh, and I did the first free cover as well. Interviewed Rihanna for it. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, they gave it a go didn't work out but um, obviously enemies reviews over the years have um, at, you know at a point when the only way to find out about especially when it came to alternative music although I, I remember sort of I wouldn't know that a pop single was coming out until I saw it reviewed in Smash It or Number One magazine or until mm-hmm. I saw an ad but you know there was no sort of general sort of growing awareness you couldn't sort of feel it in the ether in those days in the way you sort of can now through social media yeah. um, it was you needed to sort of see a review of something maybe you'd hear it on the radio but to really sort of know the week it was coming out you'd see a review of it or you'd um, see an advert for it in a magazine but in terms of NME especially with alternative music where, there, where, where it wasn't going to be on daytime radio one yeah. probably be on John Peel or whatever but it, to, to know about new artists you, you know you would need to read the NME so at that point obviously sort of a single review or an album review it's particularly singles though um, they could sort of make or break an artist's career early on couldn't yeah they? and I'm sure I remember seeing picking up copies when I was younger where they, where they were splashed over two pages and I'm, I'm very keen that this doesn't go down a my wistful enemy memories rabbit hole for me yeah certainly well firstly because I didn't write for them uh, but, but also because that's what's happening all over the internet now um, but um Obviously, you you were writing a column for them for ten years, uh, as uh, as well as uh, various other bits. I believe you were responsible for hearsay being on the cover as well. If I'm all right, yeah, yes. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I didn't make the decision to put them on the cover, but uh-huh. I said yes. Thank you very Turn, much. Turned in a piece so good that they couldn't not do it. Well, it's, I mean, how, when, when was that? Like two thousand, two thousand one. Yeah, it's easy to forget now. Similar with Pop Idol, actually, but when Pop Stars was on TV, it was. A massive thing. Mm. Obviously, what we know happened after that is that like hearsay were a bit crap, and then a member left, and it all ground to a halt. And then one of them was in Corrie, and we sort of look back and go, "What were we thinking? Was it some sort of collective madness?" But it was like a, a massive TV program. It was the first time that had really sort of happened in the UK that you would sort of watch a band being formed. There was proper hysteria over it. It was like, it was a yeah. big moment. It would be hard to explain to somebody now. Exactly, it's the same with Will and Gareth on Pop Idol because we're so used to that whole mechanic now. It's yeah. so boring, but when that was happening and they were going around the country on battle buses with rosettes pretending to be politicians and stuff mm. it was like a really big pop moment so and, and hearsay were on the cover of the enemy and they were on the cover of the face as well actually it mm-hmm. felt like a big cultural moment at that point yeah whether or not it was madness it was certainly collective it, yeah you know, just, just like every, every, yeah literally everybody everybody knew about it yeah 
Um, it's interesting the enemies come up because I, I was on Facebook today. Obviously, I was supposed to be transcribing something and I was on Facebook and uh, there was one of my friends who used to be in a band saying that, um, and this is pertinent to the review angle, he was saying that um, but one, one enemy review of one of his band's singles was so bad that it effectively ended his career. Right. Um, and he mentioned that he later found out that it was so bad because the writer had had an argument with his girlfriend that day. And then another friend replied saying that his band had been given an awful review for their performance at the Reading Festival, um, which he found strange because his label head, on the way back to... Uh, or the, on the way back to London, saw the guy who wrote the review waiting for the train to the festival at Paddington while the band were on stage. Uh, so, I mean, you know, Enemy was... What we've got there is a review written because somebody was pissed off and a review written when somebody wasn't there. Um, all I'm saying is the Enemy glory days weren't always glorious. Inspired by the olden days when record companies would spread singles across three or four formats to get the public to lap it all up, I've split my chat with Peter into two parts, so you'll have to come back next week to hear the part so libelous I had to edit two massive chunks out of it. My thanks, of course, to Peter, to Emmeline Lawford for this podcast artwork, and to you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pop a five-star review on iTunes and hit subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. We're on Twitter at ReadsLikea4 and email ReadsLikea4 at gmail.com. Until next week, thanks for listening and goodbye, my friend. I know you're gone. You said you're gone, but I can still feel you here. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.